I invite you to Ephesians chapter 4. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was executed by the German Gestapo on April the 9th, 1945. He was a brilliant Lutheran theologian, and Bonhoeffer's American colleagues pleaded with him to teach in the States and thus to avoid the risk of ministry in his native Germany during World War II. But after a brief visit in 1939, Bonhoeffer returned to Germany to continue resisting the rule of Hitler and ministering underground as an itinerant preacher to the confessing church. Until it was shut down by the Gestapo, Bonhoeffer lived for a time with 25 young pastors whom he trained for ministry in the underground church. Now think of his setting. With Hitler, the Nazis surrounding him everywhere, in clandestine meetings with churches, and then living here among these 25 pastors. Bonhoeffer, in that setting, writes the book, Life Together, in which he exposits the wonder and the duty of Christians living together in community. Christians, we know from Scripture, are ambassadors among Jesus' enemies to proclaim the gospel. Yet in His amazing grace, God not only scatters us, but also draws us together apart from the world in the fellowship of the local church. Because Jesus died alone, surrounded by His enemies, we have the privilege to live in community surrounded by our brothers and sisters. And so we are privileged and encouraged to pursue fellowship with one another as devout people. But Bonhoeffer wisely insists that there is more to it than this. Not only should we pursue fellowship with one another as devout people, as the sanctified, we should pursue fellowship as undevout people, as sinners. Now, Eden Baptist Church, this is a vital truth, and we dare not miss it. As Jesus looks down upon our church this morning, what does he see? He sees saints. He sees sinners that he has redeemed by his blood, set free from the bondage of sin, and rescued from this world. That is one thing that he sees here. Certainly there are some among us, we would assume, that do not know him as Savior and are thus separated from his love at this place and time, from his saving grace. But as Jesus looks down, what does he see? He sees us liberated from this bondage, but he sees us still as sinners. We are the sanctified, we are the saved, we are the redeemed, we have been rescued, we're no longer under sin's dominion, we have died to the old man apart from Christ, but he sees us still as the saved who sin, sinners that he is progressively transforming into his image by rendering us increasingly insensitive to the cravings and desires of the flesh and increasingly responsive to the Spirit's transforming passions. Jesus sees us as sinners in process. The question is today, do we see ourselves that way? Do we seek fellowship together as sinners with sinners? Now, understanding all that I've said, we're sanctified, we are saints in Christ's vision, but 
sinners yet in this time, unglorified? Do we see ourselves as sinners in fellowship with sinners? There's a sinister temptation that Bonhoeffer exposes, a sinister temptation for us to piously relate to one another as if our redemption is final and thus our fellowship permits no one to be a sinner. We are tempted to permit our relationship as a church to become little more than an exercise in denying our sin to ourselves and hiding our sins from each other. We dare not be sinners, he writes. Many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner is suddenly discovered among the righteous. So we remain alone with our sin, living in lies and hypocrisy. Eden Baptist Church, we must resolve to become a body of believers that chooses to fellowship as sinners with sinners, helping one another pursue sanctification in community. I want to write this out for you just because it is a full sentence and another like to it. We must resolve to become a body of believers that chooses to fellowship as sinners with sinners, helping one another pursue sanctification in community. Secondly, we must orient our lives as a church to build one another up in the faith, seeking accountability for our own sins and graciously, winsomely, as representatives of Christ, encouraging fellow sinners to grow in Christ. This vital truth is laced throughout Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, and it surfaces notably in chapter 4. Now, my treatment of this text today will not be even. It will not be exegetically thorough by any means. But I want to strive to be loyal to the context of the book of Ephesians as a whole, and I hope to demonstrate that as we lift out from this passage the vital theme of sanctification in community. That is that we are to be growing in the likeness of Jesus Christ, being transformed by His power within us as a body of believers working together, acknowledging our sin and dealing with it as a community. The first point that we see here in chapter 4 and verse 1 is that we must walk worthy of our calling as a unified body. I'll sit for some time on verse 1, and then we'll work our way more quickly through. But notice chapter 4, verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. As followers of Christ, we must conduct our lives in a manner that fits God's call upon our lives. Very simply. But what call? What is that call within the context of the book of Ephesians? Chapter 2 in verse 1 speaks of it very directly. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, that is, carrying out the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We are equipped with passions and with desires 
that go against the purposes of God. We are equipped with a mindset that doesn't think what God wants us to think. We are, in this sense, dead in our transgressions and sins. This is who we were. But, verse 4, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, verse 1, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now why does God lavish this high calling upon us who are sinners? We are in rebellion against Him. We have cravings that go completely against what He desires. We worship idols that do not lift up His name. We are His enemies. Yet He pours out His grace upon us. Why? Why would God do this? Verse 7, So that... In the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now the question that I've just asked, many would say, the reason that God would lavish such grace upon us is because we're pretty decent people. God never created junk. We bear the image of God. We're, we're, we're really redeemable. We're good. We're decent. Why wouldn't God love me? That's not what God says. We were dead in our rebellion against Him. This is the reason. So that throughout all eternity, God's saving grace will be lifted up and exalted in. He saves us so that we can see what His grace is. Saved us by His grace so that throughout all eternity we will revel in the immeasurable riches of that grace in Christ. It's for this reason then, for this eternal purpose of bringing glory and honor to God that we might see His grace that verse 8 follows. Verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, those verses definitely help us to know that salvation is not by works. But these verses start with the word for. We usually cut that off and don't deal with it because we're talking about to someone and we're saying that you're not saved by works, you're saved by grace. And that's a glorious truth in these verses. But they do start with the word for. Because it is God's intention to bring glory to His grace throughout all eternity for us to revel in the wonder of this saving grace, it is for that reason that no one will be saved by works. Because if we were saved by works, we could boast in our works. And the grace of God wouldn't look quite so great as it truly is. Now this all obviously connects together with our sin and the depth of it and all of these ideas. But these verses are intended to show us why it is that salvation is by grace alone. Yet while we are not saved by works then, verses 8 and 9, we are saved to do good works. This is also a purpose for which God saved us, so that we would glory in His mercies throughout all eternity, and so that here in this life we would begin a life of good works. Verse 10, For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. 
which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now let's take these phrases, four good works. There is one vital purpose of our redemption to do what Jesus would do in this world, to live as he would live. But notice the phrase, they are prepared beforehand. When were they prepared? We ask the question, when did our redemption begin? When were we saved from this godless life and brought into the redemption in Christ? When did that take place? Well, it took place when I trusted Christ as my Savior. Certainly true in one sense of the term. But we've got to go back further than that, don't we? Well, it took place when Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead and provided salvation. And indeed, that is the crux of it. That is where it took place. But we've got to go back further. Well, my redemption began, it would seem, right after the fall. Because it is then that God gives the prophecy of one who will come to crush Satan's head. And my redemption began there in the garden. But was God just sort of improvising on the fly? When he said to Adam and Eve, there will come one to crush Satan's head? The book of Ephesians obviously answers this question. We go way back to eternity past. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3. Considering again our worthy calling. These works that God prepared beforehand, when are these prepared? Ephesians 1 and verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. So my redemption, think of this Christian, My redemption began in eternity past when God predetermined that I become his child through the death and resurrection of Jesus in accordance with the purpose of his will. Prior to creation, God chose of his own free will to set a plan of redemption in motion, and that plan targeted my heart. He predestined you, Christian, verse 5, verse 11, for the purpose of transforming you into the likeness of Christ, to redeem you fully. Not to be exactly how Jesus was and look like Jesus looked, but to live out the character of Christ. You were chosen for transformation. Chapter 2 and verse 10, his desire was that you would be conformed to the likeness of Christ, to live out good works. This was the purpose of the redemption that was designed before anything was but God. This is our calling, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1. This is that grand calling. Now, people stop at this point, and there's response A and there's response B, generally speaking. And response A is, I'm not sure I like this. This isn't really working for me. I don't understand this predestination thing. What, what about free will, and how does free will work into this? And how, if, if it's true that God knows all things beforehand and has determined that they are what they are, where's human responsibility? How does this work? 
There's, I would suggest, a second basic response, and that is this. Before time began, God chose me as his child in order to transform me into the likeness of Jesus. That's what God has revealed. God is at work in me to will and to do of his good pleasure, which he has chosen from eternity past. And what God starts, he always finishes. So let's start rolling. I mean, there are people who fret about predestination. I'm one of them. I enjoy fretting about it. I like thinking about it. I like reading books about it. I've taken courses on it. It it really excites me. And I'm weird. There's a lot of people, though, who just really, really fret. And God reveals these amazing truths to us about the depth of our redemption, about its intricacies, and all they ever do is fret. Fret about how it works. We need to get busy walking in a manner that is worthy of God's divine purpose for our lives. That's what we need to fret about, to walk worthy of the calling. We may not understand all of its depths, but what we can see clearly revealed here in Scripture is that he had a plan before time was to redeem us, and he's working that plan. Now, walking worthy of this calling, we notice then in verses 2 through 6, is done as a unified body, or is pressed as a unified body. We are to walk worthy of this calling to which we've been called, verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now these are relational terms. What does that have to do with my becoming what God has saved me to become? He has saved me to become like Christ in unity with other believers. We relate to one another in humility and gentleness and patience and long-suffering and love and unity and peace. These are the fruits of the Spirit of God who mediates the character of Jesus to us and it affects the way that we relate to one another. We are one community whose one Lord is transforming us by His one Spirit. There is indeed, and it fits perfectly, one body, verse 4, and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. What is the effect of this reality? Self-autonomy self-sufficiency, self-promotion, self-gratification are obliterated. We become a united body in Christ. We no longer serve our own personal agenda. Now, we notice that this is not a suggestion for how we might want to see the church. We are this community. We are a community of faith united in Christ. We are called to actively pursue the unity of God's redemptive plan, which is being worked out among us. This is fact. Well, how do we do this? 
Beyond the Christ-like character and the pursuit of unity described here, we are encouraged to understand, secondly, that we must seek maturity in Christ by responding to the gift of His Word to the church. Verse 7, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. As we concentrate on our unity in Christ, as we seek to walk in community in a manner worthy of our calling, we need to recognize that Jesus gives gifts to His church that sustain this unity. To each one of us, gifts are given in the interest of this unity. Now, in a sense, he heads off on a little trail here to support what he said by quoting from Psalm 68, verse 8. Therefore, it says... When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. We could spend quite a while on his use of this psalm. But Paul quotes the psalm, which pictures God ascending up to the heights of Jerusalem and the Israelites giving gifts to God as the king through their sacrifices. He takes this psalm here and is faithful with it in amazing ways, even though it seems that he's twisting it. He's actually very faithful to the meaning of the original psalm, and he uses it to say there's even a greater theme, and that is that Jesus ascended not to Jerusalem, but to heaven. And he does not merely receive gifts, he gives them. Taking David's psalm in 68 and heightening it to say, this is who Jesus is. He is the ascended Lord who is ministering to His church. Now, even further off the trail, we'll get right back to it, but in verse 9, he says parenthetically, in saying that He ascended, what does it mean but that He also descended into the lower parts of the earth? You can't ascend to heaven unless you were on the earth. There's no ascension there unless there was a descension first. He who descended, verse 10, is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. But what did he give? Verse 11. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors slash teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. Now we're very familiar with this text, but I'd like to, again, I'm pulling one theme from it, and I'd like to look at it a bit differently here than we maybe are accustomed to. But I would like you to look at the actual gifts that God gives to the church. What are they? Apostles, prophets, evangelists. Don't think itinerant preacher who comes and everybody's supposed to pull together all the unbelievers in the town and that person's going to win them to Christ. That's not the biblical idea of evangelist. Evangelist was someone who went into a place where people had not heard the gospel and he proclaimed the gospel to people. And a church is formed. This is the gift that Christ gives to his church. The church is brought to life by God's word, which is conveyed through inspiration to these people. Do you see the common link here? The common link, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor, teachers, the common link among them is the Word of God. These are individuals who relay the revealed truth of God's Word to the church. So God sends Jesus 
who embodies the truth, conveys that truth to the apostles and prophets. Evangelists take what the apostles and prophets have said into the world, proclaim the gospel to unbelievers who are saved, and who then enter into church bodies where pastor teachers disseminate the word of God to feed the assembly. The thing that ties these gifts together is the word of God, the revelation of God's truth being disseminated to God's people. Now, what is the purpose of the ministry of this word to the church? Verse 12, to equip the saints for works of ministry. I don't think that is in a clerical interpretation, that pastors and teachers do all the teaching of the word of God and the rest of the laity does all of the work. I think, rather, the idea here is that the work of ministry or service to the body of Christ involves many tasks, but there is no reason to leave the use of the word off that list. In fact, it seems to me that verse 13 is saying we need to think that. Because it says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Can verse 13 happen by taking a meal to someone who's suffering? It's a trick question. Yes, it can. But not in the fullest sense, can it? Am I going to come to the fullness of the stature of Christ by someone bringing me a meal within the church because I'm I'm dealing with suffering? Now, that's a work of ministry, and that's an important work. It is vital. In fact, it, it evidences the compassion of Christ. And it may go very far to sanctify and to develop us to be the people that we should be. But I believe you would understand with verse 13 that the Word of God must be there. We must be ministering the Word itself if we are going to attain to the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, and to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of fullness of Christ. Negatively, what does it mean? Again, we see the ministry of the Word. Verse 14, "...so that we may no longer be children." Tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Does mowing the church lawn accomplish that? To some degree, mowing the church lawn is a reflection of the doctrine we hold. It genuinely is. But clearly, not in the fullest sense is it going to accomplish this. To be delivered from the false doctrine of the world and to be brought to maturity as a body of Christ, it necessitates the body of believers ministering the Word of God to one another. It is for the equipping of the believers to serve. It is, verse 12, it is verse 13, for spiritual maturity. Jesus gives His Word to the church in order to transform us into His likeness. God's Word teaches us the truth, keeps us from falsehood. Indeed, going even further and seeing the church's involvement in the ministry of the Word, verse 15 says, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ. Speaking the truth is literally truthing in love. But... The church grows increasingly transformed into the likeness of Christ. That is, it fulfills this goal that God has given to us by speaking and living God's truth in loving relationship to one another. It's that way that we grow in Christ. 
in Christ, from whom, verse 16, the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And so, lawn mowing and bringing a meal and nursery work and some of these kinds of things are very much a vital part of that as God gives those gifts to a church. It's part of our maturing in Christ. But when we get down to the epitome of it, it is using the words of God which He has revealed to minister to one another His truth. Now that has to take place in the formal ministry of the Word within the church. There are pastor-teachers. The purpose of the preaching-teaching ministry of a church is nothing less than the radical transformation of sinners. This is how God does it in part, is by using His Word to purify His church. He intends for the formal ministry of the Word to produce spiritual maturity in us. There's someone that told me once, the ministry of the Word in this church, your preaching particularly, has absolutely nothing to do with my sanctification. I've never forgotten that for more than one reason. But I think that really reflects a concept that's very off-base. Now, if it's tied to an individual, I understand, and I've got room for that. But when it comes to the ministry of the Word in the church, it is vital for you. And it is vital for me. It is what God uses to sanctify us. He has to work through fallen and broken vessels as he does that. But never forget that it is the Spirit of God who takes the Word of God and teaches my soul and feeds me on his truth. It's vital. And so as a church, I think we must continue to prioritize faithfulness to biblical preaching and teaching. And we pour an immense amount of effort into this as a church. We want to continue to do so. Because the Word of God is that which sanctifies God's people. It's given to us as the gift of Jesus to purify us and to bring us to holiness. And I think it means then that we need to attend the Word of God with a fair degree of patience and diligence to continue to listen and to hear week in and week out. Not ritualistically, but attending God's Word with expectancy. I mean, does God fulfill what He says He's going to do? And he's saying, I have poured out my gift of my word to individuals who are disseminating it in the church. Is God doing what he has said he's doing? Can Jesus accomplish what he's up to? He can, and he uses the word of God. We must prioritize it. But listen, there is also what we might call an informal ministry of the word that is going on all the time. In everything that we do, we interpret life and we need to help one another see life accurately in light of God's Word. Wherever it is, wherever you go, whatever you do, our flesh is easily drawn away by delusion, by false doctrine, by sensuality, by idolatry. You go to an open house. There's about 48 of them here in the next couple weeks, isn't there? Weddings, open house season. No, every one of us walks into a setting like that, and we are reflecting what we believe. We're reflecting our doctrine, our understanding of the world around us. And as we enter into one conversation and move to the next conversation, we are constantly reflecting truth 
or falsehood. We're being pulled away by false doctrine or delusion, sensuality or idolatry, or we are conforming to the truth of God. That doesn't mean we run around quoting Bible verses everywhere by any means. But it means how I see myself, how I relate to others, what I think about, what I believe to be true in every situation is a preaching of the Word of God or is delusion. We are to help one another think God's thoughts. Again, there's a way of doing this and there's a way of not doing this. It's not with an open Bible preaching at an open house or a wedding. But as we talk... We reflect what we believe about life. We reflect what God is doing in our hearts or not doing there. We display these falsehoods or truths. We display the worship of the Lord or idolatry. And we can use God's word, not necessarily quoting it, but using its concepts and its meaning to convey to one another the truth that we might help each other Do what is right. We need one another to keep God's transforming purpose before our eyes, willing to confess sins and to pursue accountability as we have conversations that are meaningful, that are uplifting, that are Christ-centered, even as we laugh and talk about mundane things. Go with me one more step as we venture more quickly, but just to get to one point here. We must put off the old self and put on the new self in community. Walking worthy of our calling in unity as a body, being sanctified by the gift of God's revealed word, we then enter into a project of putting off what belongs to the old life apart from Christ and putting on what belongs to the new. Indeed, we have put it on. But verse 17 reminds us of our old life. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice. Practice every kind of impurity. That's the old life. After the first service, I had good communion with someone with tears in our eyes as we thought back to this world, to this life, to the emptiness of life, the futility, the ignorance that is in us, the hardness of heart that is ours by nature. But again, verse 20. That is not the way that you learn Christ. This is not how we've learned Christ. We have been called to an entirely different life. We're saved from this darkness. Assuming, verse 21, that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Now, the Greek is difficult here. He may be pointing to conversion. Certainly he does so in Colossians 3.9 where he says, you have put off the old self with its practices. The old self is dead. The old self is crucified. It has been set aside. We are a new man in Christ. But the interest of the old self continues to appeal to the flesh and we must put those passions to death. 
We are taught to put off the old self and correspondingly, verse 23, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, we don't have time to wade through this section, but I want to, again, draw out this one theme and to say we don't do this on our own. We do this in community with one another. We put off and we put on. We live in the Spirit and reflect the person of Jesus Christ and we resist the passions of the flesh as we minister the Word of God to one another. Formally as a church, but informally in our conversations with one another. This is God's project, His intentional saving purpose, that we live as those who have become new and sever ties with sin as a body of believers. This agenda is never going to find support in the life of a church where we remain alone with our sin, living in lies and hypocrisy, writes Bonhoeffer wisely. It's not going to happen. And I think this sermon, this text, and what this theme is as it's brought out really drives hard at some of us. Indeed, at every one of us, we're tempted in one of these ways. But there are among us, perhaps, you apply as the Spirit of God looks at your heart, but there are among us, perhaps, the judgmental hypocrite. This is the person who wants everyone to believe, I've got it all together. I've got it all together, and I really don't understand why everybody else doesn't. This is the person who's very quick to judge people who evidence sin in their life. Say, that was wrong, that was wrong, that person's out of line. Boy, they're really struggling spiritually. It's kind of a way of protecting yourself behind your own hypocritical mass and saying that sin is everybody else's problem. I've really got my act together, and I can't figure out why everyone else doesn't have their act together. And that's one of the key evidences of this kind of orientation is heavy on criticism, critical of others' lives. And you know at the heart of it? The reason is because this person has not seen that they are the chief of sinners, as Paul did. If the Apostle Paul looked at himself and said, I am the chief of sinners, then we ought to all at least recognize this, that we're the worst sinner we're ever going to deal with. Because we know more about ourselves than anyone else. The judgmental hypocrite stands back and behind this mask is not dealing with his or her own sin, but is simply pointing at the sins of others to constantly measure up. I'm better, I'm better, I'm better, I'm better. The second kind of person that's really going to run into trouble with Jesus' agenda is the functional loner. You come to church, you interact with people, but you honestly do not see the body of Christ as an essential feature of your sanctification. It just isn't. You deal with sin on your own. You take care of it privately. You deal with it privately. You don't talk about it. You don't really need other people. It's kind of nice to have them around, but they're not essential. They're not part of my sanctification project. That's all between me and God. My sin is my business, and by the grace of God, He's helping me through it. And your sin is your business. I pray He's helping you through yours. 
how does that Christian stand in face of the book of Ephesians? That person is obliterated. This doesn't work. This is not the calling to which we've been called. We thirdly have the critical consumer. You want the church. You need the church. You recognize your need for it. You recognize your need pretty much in many parts of your life for people. You need them around you. It's important to have them around you. But the church just doesn't measure up to the way that it should be helping me and making things work for me. It's just always kind of falling short. This isn't right and that isn't right. I need people to help me here and I need the church to pull this off for me, but it's not happening. It's not getting done. I'm, I'm upset about this and upset about that and... You know what the truth may be is really at the heart you're looking for the church to supply something that's missing in your soul. Or to say it another way, what's in your soul is self-idolatry and you want everybody to line up to fit what you want them to be so that you get what you want. And the church is nothing more than a tool to bolster your own idolatrous desires. You want others to love you for your sake, not for Christ's sake. You want others to love you so that you're built up to be who you want to be, not so that you are pouring your life into them to build them up to be who God has made them to be. We've all got issues somewhere in there, I assume. The truth is that we are all sinners, and each of us must make the willing choice to fellowship with sinners. Have you made that choice? Do you see your relationship with the church in those terms? By God's grace, I'm dead in Christ to sin. I'm a saint in that sense. I have been rescued from the bondage, delivered from sin, but... I am a sinner. I'm in process. I'm continuing to grow, and I'm going to relate to other people who also are sinners. Rather than remaining alone in my sin, and rather than living in lies and hypocrisy, and rather than not being vulnerable to others and permitting them to be vulnerable to me, I'm going to approach a way of sanctification my way. I don't need the church. I don't need God's people. And they don't need me. Or they need to become what I want them to be. We are called to this holy calling to become like Jesus. And we are to become like Jesus as we sanctify one another by ministering graciously the word of God to each other, in unity, putting off and putting on, separating ourselves from the passions of the flesh, and seeking to walk in the Spirit so that we reflect the person and the beauty of Jesus. Eden Baptist Church, I need you in this process. I need your accountability. I need your help. I need your rebuke at times. I need your encouragement. Because I'm a sinner. And you need mine. 
We've got to learn to talk about things more than the football game or summer vacation, the beauty of the weather. Now, these things are appropriate and right and good as we build bridges to people. But we have got to get down to a deeper level where we level with one another about what is in our lives. We let the mask come down appropriately, honorably, but we say, here's my struggle. And anyone who, who hears you speak of your sin struggle and walks away from you and does not love you is not worth the worry. It's just another hypocrite out of your life. But where there is genuine love in the body of Christ, we will be willing on an appropriate level to say, this is my struggle. Hold me up in it. Pray for me in it. May God use us to sharpen one another and to pull one another along that together we are way better than we could ever be on our own. God shows us this in one sense in the institution of marriage. Where there is a faithful and good marriage, there are two people, both of whom are saying, I'm way better than I would be on my own. And so it should be in the local church where we can all say, I am growing closer to Christ and I am being sanctified by my communion with the people of God. They are important to me. And I sense that as I minister the word, I am important to them. Not because there's any greatness in us, but because Christ has given his word to his people, which sanctifies us to become like Jesus. And we speak that word to one another in community. May God be praised. And for anyone among us who says, I've not put off the old self, I'm just who I always was. Please understand that Jesus Christ paid the penalty of sin by dying and suffering God's judgment upon our sin. But he rose from the dead in victory over death and the grave. And he is transforming a people who come to him in simple faith and receive the gift of his saving grace. It is the grace of God that we will celebrate through all eternity, not our goodness. Have you received his grace willingly? Have you received his grace freely? He offers it with open arms and says, Come to me, you who labor under the bondage of sin, and I will set you free. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, we thank you for the body of Christ. And I confess, as one in the flesh given to sin, that I do not understand and honor the body dynamic as I should. 
May each one of us, Lord, realize that we are not who we should be in being held accountable, and we are not who we should be in speaking the truth of your word. May you break down the barriers of our pride, our selfishness, and I pray, God, that we would be open to speak the truth to one another in love that the great agenda that Jesus has begun from eternity past will be completed in us incrementally through this life until we enter glory. You have saved us for time and eternity, but there's a great project that's going on, and we pray that you'll bring it about not only through the indwelling Spirit and your word to us, but also through our relationship with one another. May we make one another better by your grace. And draw, we pray to yourself, anyone who is separated from the love of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.